I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to The Parenthood. The one thing I know I share with every one of our listeners is the desire to help our children be happier, more secure in a world that's often insecure, where we often feel inadequate. With me today is Alain de Botin, a philosopher and author who believes that an understanding of philosophy gives both children and their parents practical tools to make sense of an often confusing world. Alain, thank you so much for joining me today. We're recording remotely. We're still sort of in a lockdown world, but I really appreciate you being on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. So I'd love to just start with a vague idea. You know, what is philosophy and how can it help us lead happy, healthy lives and also make our minds happier and healthier? Yeah, well, it's important not to get too abstract here. Philosophy really just involves a dedication to thinking through problems reasonably and rationally. So we are all philosophers whenever we're thinking straight. It doesn't mean anything other than that. The etymology of the word philo, love, sophia, wisdom, literally means a a dedication to a a less anguished, more thought through existence. And that's something that the ancient Greeks who invented philosophy believed was a birthright for, for everyone. This wasn't an elite activity. It didn't depend on having gone to a certain university or reading certain books. It just meant following, you know, a set of guidelines as to the reasonableness of your argument. So the opposite of philosophy for the Greeks was religious fanaticism or a a sort of unexamined faith in something where someone would say, you know, why do you believe in bringing up your children like this? And you would simply say, a god told me. That is the opposite of philosophy. So a philosophical upbringing or a belief in a philosophical upbringing is one in which we're prepared to examine our ideas around upbringing and submit them to reason and logical debate. I see. And so the idea that the challenges that we face in modern day life, I mean, reading a Big Ideas for Curious Minds, it basically presents the ideas that the philosophers have had for the last thousands of years. And yet what struck me is that the problems they had in ancient Egypt were very similar to the issues that we were experiencing today in 21st century London. I mean, absolutely. You know, one of the key ideas of early philosophy is that the priority in life is to know yourself. And Socrates, the earliest, greatest philosopher, famously proposed that the unexamined life is not worth living. And what he really meant by that is by not submitting your own feelings and intuitions to analysis, you're going to be letting through an awful lot of 
wonky ideas because the mind, though it's a beautiful and amazing instrument in many ways, it does throw out a lot of unreliable data and hypotheses. So the modesty to be able to say, look, I know I think very strongly that X is right. I've also got the humility to, to say, well, I, I'd be prepared to examine why I believe this. And, you know, you can draw a very clear line between the early philosophers and what nowadays we call psychotherapy, because psychotherapy is the modern world's attempt to also not simply act, but also reflect on why we act, submit our thoughts and feelings to examination. And also there's the similar modesty about the way that the mind comes to its ideas. Our minds, which, as I say, are often so impressive, are also prey to all kinds of phantasms, imaginings, nostalgic ideas drawn from the past that's no longer relevant to today, etc., etc. So alongside a dedication to thinking is always a dedication to accepting you might be wrong. So in this sense, philosophy is quite close to science, the scientific method, which, again, doesn't want any heroes that can never be questioned. It's always saying how we might we improve on the hypotheses that we've put forward to date. And all of this could sound very, very far away from the world of children. But of course, children are learning how to think and how to understand themselves and understand other people. So getting some of these ideas in early can be very, very helpful. And, you know, it's not contrary to having a, a happy and uh, many ways carefree and um, sometimes naughty, sometimes silly childhood. All these things are part of a good childhood, but, but a little bit of dedication to, to reason and untangling the mind can be very helpful. And really empowering too. I think very often the world is a really confusing and often a scary place for children. They feel that they have to prove themselves. One of the things you talked about in Happy Healthy Minds was, you know, the, the concept of shyness. And I think there was an analogy with a fire alarm that we're all attuned to the sort of fight, flight, and, and we know we're very used to living in a much more dangerous world than we currently live in. And that the fire alarm you might be boiling some pasta and that will make the fire alarm go off doesn't mean you have to exit your house and it's going to burn down and that your brain will often when you meet someone new just because they look at a bit different or they're a different age you you might have that that fire alarm triggered in your mind which is essentially shyness and speaking to my children who do experience shyness just that understanding really helped them you know, understand why they were feeling shy, feel less bad about it, but also maybe teaches them to understand that sometimes they can overcome that by saying, you know, actually, maybe the situation isn't quite as scary as I'd anticipated. Yes, I mean, shyness is a really interesting one, because I think most children begin shy. And partly shyness is a kind of, a kind of cognitive error, if you like. It's, it's, an, it's based on a false assumption about what other human beings are like. And it's a very easy assumption to fall into. We do this as children and we sometimes continue to do it as adults. And basically the feeling is, I know what I'm like from the inside. I know various things about myself. And so the feeling is, when I meet another human being, I will judge them from all sorts of things that I can see on the dashboard of their face. And if I don't see certain things, I'll assume that certain things are not there. So, for example, one of the classic things that children misunderstand is adults that they'll meet generally don't show that they're scared, whereas children are much more natural. You can see their fear. So sometimes when a child meets an adult, it imagines that it's meeting a paragon 
of confidence, somebody with absolutely no flaws, no, no self-doubts, no anxieties, etc. And in other words, quite a frightening person. If the child could properly see into the adult's mind, it would see that what it's got on its hands is basically a creature very, very similar to it itself. So the child is mistakenly turning an adult into something that it's not because it's taking the adult too much at face value. It also does this in other areas of life. But another thing that the child does is to picture other children in equally forbidding ways. So the child who arrives at, a, at the children's party thinks, I know that this is very frightening. I don't know who to talk to. I don't know where the crisps are. I'm worried about where the loo is. I don't want to say goodbye to my mummy, whatever it may be. And it thinks it's the only one with those fears. And so the party becomes truly daunting. And the wise parent will always go, look, even though those kids seem very confident, etc., they are actually a bit like you. They were very scared. They are prey to all the same, you know, doubts and hesitations and vulnerabilities as you. And therefore, you have every right to join in and be part of the gang because you're one of them. And I think this is so hard for us to, to hold on to. We're always making other people into something very, very different from ourselves. And the person who can remain confident is somebody who thinks, OK, even though I'm meeting somebody who looks really, really different from me, maybe they're from another country, they're from another age group, they're from another background. If you can just hold on and think, well, I know there's a common core of humanity that connects us all. So this person, however forbidding they seem, however strange they seem, ultimately, you know, they probably love many of the same things I do. They cry about the same things I do. They're afraid of the same things I do. So I can afford to hold out a hand and have a giggle with them because they're much like me. They don't seem like me, but deep down they are. And it's a kind of leap of faith. And I think that's what we, it's very useful to try and convince children of that. And one of the first ways to do that is to humanise yourself as an adult in their eyes. Because the more they can see that even though you, their parent, does seem quite strange as well to them, that actually, in many ways, you're also like them. That makes the world seem much more manageable. One of the things you talk about a lot in Happy Healthy Minds is the relationship children have with their parents. And actually, I was reading the, the chapter to a group of children the other day, and it was so illuminating for them, but also for me, because essentially there are two different tribes and it's just looking at the other perspective, you know, the idea that your your parents are, are really annoying and they're constantly telling you to do things. And the idea that, you know, it is it's all rooted in love. My, my children found that, I think, very, very helpful. It gave us an opportunity to talk about what was frustrating from their point of view. But does that stem from a philosophical concept? Yes, if you like. The philosophical concept that's being employed here is that a behaviour which looks one way may have an explanation which stems from a quite different place. I mean, again, you find this in, in scientific method. The way things look is not necessarily the way they are. Our senses deceive us. The earth looks flat. It is not flat. It takes an amazing amount of reasoning to reason ourselves out of merely trusting our senses. So in the same way, you know, mummy looks like an evil monster because she told me to finish my vegetables. You may be as convinced of that as a four-year-old as a 44-year-old in the 17th century was convinced that the earth must be 
must be flat because it looks flat. In both cases, you can employ a bit of what we can grandly call philosophical reasoning to go, maybe the way things look is not actually the way they are. And so even though mummy seems like she wants to destroy me because she's evil, if you actually step back a little bit and advance in your sort of analysis of possible motives, you may find another motive, an unexpected one, like actually mummy is really worried about me because she really wants me to have a good life and vegetables are part of her idea of why I'll be able to have a good life. You can then, with age, start to pity your parents. You can say, look, my parent was slightly hysterical in this area. They wanted well for me and they somehow were so scared of the world, they landed on vegetables as the thing that would help me to not get divorced, not be penniless, not be an outcast, have a decent life. And maybe it's a bit exaggerated because broccoli's never really had that power. But, you know, my parent who meant so well and was so scared landed on a vegetable and I can sort of forgive them because I know that they're good even though their behaviour gave me quite a lot of problems so we had a lot of run-ins over meal times for many many years and so that that opens up a possibility for harmonization between um, uh, parents and children absolutely the other thing is the anger issues which i think is very common amongst young children how how what philosophical concepts can help with anger understanding anger and actually ideally controlling anger mm. Well, one of the really unexpected discoveries of the Stoic philosophers of ancient Greece and Rome is their analysis that angry moods very often stem from optimism. This sounds rather paradoxical because we imagine people who are angry to be quite sort of gloomy and sort of depressive people. But far from it. Behind every outburst of rage lies a great hope, a hope that the world could be a certain way. You know, the person who shouts every time they lose their house keys is suggesting that they believe in a world in which house keys just never go missing. Or, you know, if your parents start screaming every time they get in a traffic jam, it sort of suggests that beautifully, but rather dangerously, they're believing in a world in which the roads should always be, quite strangely, traffic free. It's just not the way. And so that opens up an avenue for how we might be less filled with rage. Not disappointed, because disappointment might always follow us, but there's a real difference between disappointment and smashing up the room because you're so furious, which sometimes toddlers and, unfortunately, adults also do. So what we need to do is get a correct picture of reality in lots of ways. And the way to control our anger is sometimes to be a little bit sadder about the way that the world actually is. So, you know, let's imagine a one-year-old, a mug falls off the side of the table and smashes into a thousand pieces. The, 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 the one-year-old goes absolutely crazy. It's furious. The mug is broken. How is this such a thing possible? By the time you've reached 40, you sort of know, you know, objects come off tables and they smash. It's sad, but no need to have a tantrum. But there are lots of areas where we remain quite toddler-prone, even as adults. You know, watch the way people will respond to a delay at an airport. You know, they'll smash their fist against the you know, check-in desk and go, oh, it's not possible. You want to go, look, how long have you been on the planet? You know, how many flights have you taken? You know that this happens. Is it, is it great? No. We're very sad with you. Could it happen? Yes. You know, every time that you embark on pretty much any venture in the world there's a possibility that it will go very wrong. Every time you do a podcast, buy a dishwasher, make a car journey, make a friend, there are possibilities of, of risk. And when we get into a rage, we should simply ask ourselves, what's the picture of reality that we've got? And 
you know, we don't want to make our children depressive. That's not the answer. But we can sometimes stretch their picture of reality and say things like, you know, there is a lot of frustration in, in life. You know, let's not make any bones about it. I'm not trying to smooth away every difficulty. We might, for example, rather than presenting ourselves as carefree adults who are sort of swanning through the world and our work's always jolly and we're always advancing from one success to another, we might let our children into some of our frustrations. We might say things like, you know, I tried doing this bit of work five times today and I just hate it and I hate myself and I'm so fed up. Oh dear. And that's not ruining the child's view of reality. It's helping the child to understand what someone that they love and respect actually has to go through and therefore what they will have to go through in order to assume a place in a good enough adult life. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I think there's an idea that as parents, we should be really positive for our children. You know, their first day at school, school's going to be great. You're going to love it. You're going to make such good friends. But reading your books... Is that potentially a bad thing to do because you're essentially building their expectation to be very high so that there's more likely to be a disappointment when school's not so great and actually someone was a bit mean and actually they feel a bit misunderstood and they haven't found their best friend. Do we need to be less optimistic or is it still Mm. important to to retain a degree of positive thinking? You know, we're going to think it will go right rather than it won't. I think the important thing is authenticity, to allow a child to feel the feelings that they have without taking fright if those feelings are not what we as parents might ideally want. So imagine we've invested in a quite expensive holiday by the seaside and we get there on the first day and it's a beautiful weather and we find our child crying in a corner and we say, what's wrong? And they say, I don't want to be here. I miss home. Right now, at that point, a certain sort of parent might go, don't be ridiculous. This house costs a fortune or it's beautiful here. Look at the sea. It's lovely. Have a great time. Right. This is from the nicest of motives, throttling a child's ability to keep in touch with its own feelings. What you should say as a parent is, first of all, mirror the emotion. So say, I feel I hear you're telling me that in many ways you miss home. So you mirror the feelings. I understand that you miss home. Secondly, legitimate that feeling. It may not be the most ideal feeling, but it's a legitimate feeling. So you can say, I understand. Sometimes I've missed home. Dig dig deep into yourself and realise how often your feelings are not necessarily the ones that are prescribed by society or the moment. So honour the feeling, mirror it and then legitimate it. Once you've done that, immediately the child's mood will lift. 
right? You will you will stop your child's resistance the moment you say, you're right, you know, it's a lovely place here, the sea's beautiful, but I know in many ways I've missed home. I don't miss home now myself, but I know what it's like to miss home. It's painful, isn't it? And they might have a little cry and go, yes, it's, it's really horrible. And then after that little cry, they might be really prepared to go out and enjoy the seaside. But unless you've given them that chance, you know, and parents are all the time stripping children of their possibility for authenticity. You know, a child will come home from school and go, I hate Mrs Smith, the maths teacher. She's a silly old cow. And the, and the parent will go from a well-meaning point of view. Don't say that about the teacher. She's trying very hard to educate you in maths. Again, it's meant helpfully. It's a real disaster. You need to stop and mirror the emotion. In other words, say, I hear you're pretty upset with Mrs. Smith. And then say, honour it and say, well, it's possible. It's possible that, you know, maybe she means well, but it sounds like she's really annoyed you. And maybe she said something that really frightened you, maybe. And maybe dig into your own experience. Maybe you had something like that at school. Don't run away from that emotion. And then once you've done that, probably the maths teacher will stop being such an ogre or that feeling will be, you know, dissipated. So, so often we as parents are scared of the strangeness, the difficulty, the obtuseness of children's thoughts and will all the time simply deny the thought. You're not allowed. You know, child will say, I think granny's a silly old lady. And you go, no, she's a lovely person and she loves you very much. Again, just allow yourself a minute to go, OK, well, I wonder why you said that. Sounds like you're quite annoyed. Is there something in particular that, that you fi- makes you say that she's silly, etc.? You'll get to the root of it and then you'll breed a child who becomes an adult who doesn't have to run away from difficult feelings. And in 20 years' time, when their partner walks in the room and they say, I've had a really bad day at work and I'm so fed up with everything, they won't say, oh, you should be really lucky to have a job like yours. Many people are unemployed. They won't say that. They'll go, oh, tell me about it. That can happen, can't it? And then they'll make for a more harmonious relationship to themselves and to other people. Should we be managing their expectations, though, as well? Should we, you know, before they go to school, say, do you know what? You might actually hate your maths teacher. It's really normal to feel that. Or, you know, even though we're all really looking forward to this holiday, it doesn't mean it's going to be absolutely great fun every time. Yes, I think to induct a child into the tragedy comedy of life is very important. And as I say, tragedy and comedy, many, many sad things happen and children are well able to take them. You know, you can tell children that granny hasn't gone to another place. She's dead. And it's really sad. We all miss her. But she's not gone to another place. She's just dead. And we're all going to die. It's very sad. And that's why today's really important, because we're all together. We can have a nice time. So it's not stripping life of its beauty and its purpose. It's enhancing it to be real. You need to be real with children. You don't. Childhood does not require a sort of Disney World sentimental gloss. At the same time, we need to teach our children what we know as adults, which is almost nothing is pure and perfect and lasts very long in a you know, unadulterated state. Love affairs don't, holidays don't, jobs don't, etc. We have little pockets of happiness and we must cherish those. But anything long, you know, going on holiday, it's going to be full of frustration. Sometimes we'll be sad, sometimes we'll be miserable. That's okay. It all belongs to the tragic comedy of life. And what helps your children is to see that you know this as an adult, but you're rolling with the punches. You are, you know, on the stormy ship of life, 
Sometimes there are storms, sometimes there's nice weather, but what there isn't is unadulterated calm for years. It doesn't exist. And if they can see you surviving it, being honest about it, sometimes laughing, sometimes crying, they will grow into that thing we all want, which is resilient children. Resilience is not based on removing all obstacles. Yeah, and the idea that, you know, the more broken or the most more scars or the more cracks something has, the more interesting and, and beautiful it is. We were reading about Kintsuki and the idea that perfectionism doesn't really exist. And my son Ludo said, well, yes, if things were perfect, they'd be boring. And I love the idea that my 10-year-old immediately uh, came up with this because it's something that I think we as parents struggle with a lot. I, I teach antenatal classes. A lot of my job is preparing parents for the reality of parenting and everyone tells you how wonderful and what a privilege it is and you've probably spent many years thinking about life with children through rose-tinted spectacles and thinking about running through fields and having glorious picnics together but what no one really ever talks to you about are the dark days where you secretly wish you didn't have children one mm. of the things you talked about is Donald Winnicott's idea of, of the good enough parent could you talk to me about that concept and, and why yes. it's so important? Well, just before getting onto that, I mean, something struck me, you know, as parents, we need to look around at our fellow adults and say, you know, most of us know at least 100 people. Maybe we've met even more than 100 people. Anyway, we've met quite a few people in our lifetimes. Now, what you're doing when you're bringing a child into the world is making a human being, not a, a miraculous creature from another planet, not something you saw in an advert, but another human being. So in other words, your child is most likely to be like other people you've met. And, and this is very hard because sometimes we think, no, 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 my child will be different. It will sort of be assembled out of superior matter. No, it will be a bit like other people you've met. Now, if things go really, really well, it will be at the lovely end of other people you've met. But even that end, if we're honest, is filled with, you know, quite a few reservations and regrets and ambivalences, etc. So, you know, think of the loveliest person you know, your child might end up like that. And even the loveliest person you know will not exhaust your imagination. You, you'll think, oh, there's that thing that they always do, or it's a pity that they've always got a bit of a hang up in that area, etc. So th that's the sort of creature you'll be bringing into the world. Hopefully, hopefully, if everything goes right, among the loveliest sort of people you've ever met, which is not an angel. Angels don't exist. Humans don't produce angels. It just, it doesn't happen. So that helps to sort of set expectations correctly. Now, one of the things, I think one of the greatest goals of parenthood is ultimately to make your child feel solid inside. And the way it feels solid inside is to know that you are on its side, that it is deeply and profoundly loved, that you will try and spring it out of prison if it ever got to that, that you would defend it in front of a hostile crowd, uh, that you would you know, cherish it to the nth degree, not because you're deluded, but because you're its parent and you know it and you're on its side. You have sympathy for all of its thought processes and troubles and, and journey, etc. So if you do that bit, you can forgive yourself a lot of other stuff. You can get divorced, you can have arguments, you can lose stuff, you can forget the school play, you can drop the lunch, you can have mistakes. What children, as I say, need to know is that they have somebody so much on their side because that will enable them to be on their own side. 
And if we think of those terrible stresses that adults go through, moments when they feel suicidal, God forbid, when they take their own life, it's because they feel deep inside that there is no one really who's sufficiently enough on their side. But if somewhere inside you have the echo of that parental champion, I believe that you'll be able to keep those suicidal thoughts much more at bay because you will be, you will know that you are wanted and cherished. And I think that's the really important thing. To, to get on to Winnicott, you know, Winnicott was a, a child psychoanalyst working in the 50s, 60s and 70s in Britain. And he was very struck by parents who felt they weren't doing a good enough job, a perfect job. And he said to them, no one needs a perfect parent. All they need is a good enough parent. In other words, parenting that can be accompanied by many errors, so long as the fundamental trust that the child has in the parent can be maintained and enhanced. That's the, that's the key thing. So it's not as though nothing matters in parenting. It's just that too often in the way we parent, we don't focus on the really, really important things. It's a mistake we make in relationships as well. We sometimes think that in order to have a good relationship, you know, you need to do everything together, share all your friends, keep a perfect house, blah, blah, blah. No, you just need to get a few things right. There are people who play golf together every day and have all the same friends who still get divorced. What is it that really matters in adult life? Again, it's the capacity to be seen by another person, to be vulnerable in front of another person, to feel cherished by them in who you are, in your deepest self. If, if that capacity for, for deep trust and recognition is there, a whole host of other things can go terribly wrong. And if that's not there, your life could look perfect. It's on the rocks. And as parents, you know, that importance of really drilling home the idea that they are loved unconditionally I mean how do we do that because I think as parents we do love our children unconditionally usually we tell them that the whole time but what what can you do you know to, to reinforce that or rather than just telling them of course of course I mean it's also a sad truth that not everybody does love their children as they should not because they're evil but because they're damaged and there wouldn't be so many very damaged adults walking around if everyone knew how to love that their children, that they don't. We've got at least 50% of the population that has serious problems delivering the right sort of love to their children in the right way. So they may feel affection towards their children, they may feel a certain sort of loyalty, but as you very rightly and uh, acutely point out, merely saying, I love you, is not quite enough. So love has to be enacted, not merely stated. So what is love enacted? What does it mean to actually enact that love? So a few things stick out to listen to your child, very important. Actually get down to their level and listen to what they're telling you. That's called mirroring or attunement in the technical language. You attune yourself to the demands of, of your child. So when the child says, I feel sick, I feel I'm drowning, you don't say, don't be silly, you're only three. You, you try and get into what's going on. You try as much as possible, especially in the early years, to give the child a sense that their needs are at the centre of your world. Gradually, gradually, and it's also part of a good childhood, you learn to teach them that they're not in the middle of the universe. That's also important, but they need at the very beginning to feel that they are. So it's a transition from thinking that they're the little emperor and they're right in the middle to gradually accompanying them on the painful journey to taking their place among other human beings and putting other people's needs also in the spectrum of their of their concerns. Allowing the child to pursue 
its own interests without you imposing your own agenda. Many parents, unfortunately, need their children to be in a certain way in order that their own sense of self can be shored up so that the child, the parent needs the child to be a lawyer, to be a great violin player, even if actually it really has no aptitude and no interest in these areas at all. But the parent is bringing their own anxiety, projecting their own models of decent life onto the child. That can be very harmful. It's very important if, whenever possible, the parent is able to keep some of the urgency and despair of their own life slightly shielded from the child insofar as it's possible. So they may feel like screaming, saying it's all over, uh, getting the kitchen knife and charging around the room. Try, if possible, and you know save that till the children have gone to bed. Take that to a psychotherapist. Take that to a friend. To try, while you're in the vicinity of children, to keep your own more desperate sides at, at bay. If you haven't been able to do that, to contextualise this, to explain to the child what's going on. This is also part of the work of love and to, to humble yourself as you need to in front of a child and say, I'm sorry, I've made a mistake. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not who I should have been, but I'm committed to trying to do better next time. Um, so these are all some of the things that we need to do in order to make that word love actually come into action rather than merely be, you know, a, a word. I mean, that vulnerability is probably very important too. I mean, obviously within reason, but one of the most helpful things I drew from the School of Life books was the idea yeah. that, you know, imperfection as a parent is such an important learning curve that if a child is brought up and everyone around them is always perfect, they always say the right thing, they're always measured. When they finally get into the real world and someone is a bit short with them or a bit mean, they're suddenly their world comes crashing down. And actually by modeling the fact that even people you admire and respect and love the most can, you know, it, 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 that their world can come tumbling down, that actually that is a part of life and you can say sorry and you can model the fact that that is not the end of the world. Yes, I mean, the word model is a beautiful one and such an important one, because, of course, that's what you're doing all the time as a parent. You're modelling behaviour. And you're absolutely right that one of the most important lessons that we can model is the repair, the work of repair. You know, psychoanalysts talk about this constant distinction between rupture and repair. There are moments of rupture where things break down. People have arguments. They walk out of room saying, I'll never see you again, etc. Rupture happens. Trust breaks down. But Equally important, more important than rupture, is the capacity to patch it up in a good way. In other words, to properly acknowledge what went on, say sorry where you need to, laugh where you need to, cry where you need to, and show the child that this is all part of a good enough uh, adult life. Because as you say, you know, you want a child that when they're having a relationship is able to lose their temper, then say sorry, panic and then recover poise. Be honest about some of their more dangerous or difficult feelings without losing sight of the hope that the other person can understand it if it's explained to them reasonably calmly. So a lot of important lessons are... Th think, of, think of sexuality. Parents and children don't and shouldn't really talk about sex. They don't need to. Lots of that conversation's going on beneath the scenes. Imagine a child who is able to express that they have quite an unusual need. They're, they're five years old, they're a boy, but they want to wear a dress, right? Imagine if the parent goes, okay, so that's interesting. Why don't you try that? See what, see how it feels. Let's, let's take a look at it. And, and stays calm. That person can then grow into an adult who later on will be able to say on their first date, 
I'm a particular sort of person. This is what I like in the bedroom. I wonder what you like. And they're able not to be permanently ashamed, embarrassed or furtive. They don't need to keep secrets more than they have to. They're able to be a more or less honest correspondent of who they are without taking flight in people-pleasing behaviour or shifty behaviour, which really causes problems, whether that's in the office, in a bedroom, in a relationship or indeed parenting. Mm. And we're talking after probably one of the most memorable years we will have for decades, you know, the coronavirus crisis where our world's changed hugely, but also one of the predominant feelings we've all had to deal with is, is fear. How can parents support their children in, an, in a situation like we had, you know, back in March where we were all fearful? We didn't quite know what this risk was and how it was going to affect us as individuals. How can we how can we reassure our children when we don't really, you know, it's not like, you know, it's fine to go down that stair, slide. I'll be here to catch you at the bottom. This is a real fear. How do we deal with mm. that? Mm. Look, I think that fear is a huge issue in adult life and childhood. And when we talk about people who are traumatised, and many, many adults are traumatised, what do we mean? We mean that they suffered something in childhood normally that has not been properly digested. It's continuing to reverberate through their psyche because it's not been properly seen and understood. So people will talk about having PTSD, complex PTSD. These are very, you know, increasingly coming on the, the radar of psychotherapists as they discuss adulthood. What tends to make a difficulty into a trauma is the lack of contextualization, the lack of explanation, discussion at the time. So let's imagine a child witnesses an act of violence and then the next day everybody pretends it didn't happen and no one discusses it. And the child maybe has fears that are not dealt with in any way. And the thing is just brushed under the carpet. Very, very unhelpful. If a child has been witness to something very difficult, violence, trauma of something, it has to be processed. Right. That's the first rule of psychotherapy. If there is difficulty and excessive fear and trauma, the way through is processing. And how do you process? Well, first of all, you discuss it. You allow the child to express its feelings with honesty, you give room to the child to say, I'm scared, I'm scared that you're scared, I'm scared the whole world's ending. And what we quickly find with a lot of child's fears is that they do overshoot the mark. So take the coronavirus, the child may say, I'm very scared. The adult may say, I'm very scared. If you drill further into the child's fear, the child may say things like, I'm scared we're all going to die, right? And that's actually not on the cards. It's just not on the cards. So an adult can say, well, I understand that you're scared. I'm a bit scared. I'll tell you what I'm scared of. And then let's look at what you're scared of. And let's see if it's the same thing. So I'm really scared that lots of people will lose their jobs, which is really sad because when people lose their jobs, they lose their motivation. They can't buy their children what they might want. It's very difficult for them. They lose confidence, etc. So you explain to the child, what is it you're afraid of? And what is it I'm afraid of? And, you know, children's fears are by nature excessive. So, you know, when there's a strange noise in the night, they think it was a crocodile or an invading army of bats or whatever it is. The childish imagination is not able to reason its way out of fear. One of the things about being an adult is that you, we all have amazing capacities to contextualize and deal with fears to the point when, you know, God forbid, it will happen to us all one day, a doctor, nice doctor will say to us, I'm sorry, you know, that's it. 
you know, by tonight or you've got two months or whatever it is. And we as adults will go, okay, all right, it's it's okay. All I've got to do now is die. And it's terrible. It's very sad. But we will know how to do it when the time comes. A little child doesn't know how to handle its fear. It doesn't know how to handle its fear of the cat, of the neighbour, of the party, of school, etc. And one of the important things to do as a parent is to teach the art of soothing, contextualising the fear so that it's able to make that long, long journey from being afraid of the wind as a, as a one-year-old to, as an 80-year-old, being able to accept the fact of its own death. That's the journey we're on. And part of being a parent is to build in the qualities that will enable the child to go on that long journey. I mean, obviously, if there's a child that's scared that there's a monster under the bed, you could contextualise it and say, well, how would the monster have got into our house? We have a lock on our door and I've not seen any monsters in the street. And actually, how would they even fit under their bed? You know, you can you can reason with them like that. With something like the coronavirus, when we didn't really know, and, and you know, you get a child that says, that's what I'm scared of, that we're all going to die. Do you say, well... It, that's just not going to happen or do you how do how do you how do you reason with them when that's their fear well you you look at the facts so you as an adult are in charge of the facts so at no point in this pandemic did anyone ever say that we would all die the most dire prediction was that you know up to 50 percent of the population could get this and there might be a mortality rate of you know one percent this was the worst case scenario it turned out to be much much less even the mortality rate is much less. It's bad, but it's not that bad. So even if it were the worst thing, we would simply say to a child, this is the worst thing that, that may happen. But look, let's ramp up the tension. Let's imagine there was a nuclear war. What would you tell a child? Well, again, you would say, these are the facts. This is how we might cope. And even, look, if it comes to it, I mean, children have been involved in dreadful conflicts, you know, since the beginning of time. You simply take a child as a reasonably you know, sane creature, and you say, you know, I'm sorry, the Nazis are at the door, and this may be it. I love you. I've always loved you. We hope to live. Maybe we won't, but we hope so. And, you know, that's the way to do it. So all of us are by nature really quite resilient. We're all creatures who are going to die and are going to be able to cope with the fact of our own death. So, you know, let that make us confident as as parents. We don't need to hide from them the facts of life. We need to introduce the facts of life gently, sanely. We need to cut the facts of life up for them in the same way as we cut up their food for them. We want them to digest the facts. We're happy, we're happy to cut them up, but we know that that is the dish they're going to have to eat. And so be it. They're ready for it. Yeah, to respect the fact that they can deal with it. Hmm. Has lockdown, I mean, we've all we've all slowed down. I've really enjoyed slowing down and having more time to think and discuss and have you know long conversations with my children that actually normal busy life usually precludes us from from engaging in is that what have you been thinking about is this something you do as a family and is it something that lockdown has uh, has lockdown given you the opportunity to think and explore more Mm. well you know by stripping away so much of normal busyness it naturally leads one to ask what here do I really enjoy? What here feels necessary? What could I say goodbye to? And so it's a sort of cleansing action. And lots and lots of things start to seem less important. Of course, there are some things that might seem even more important. So some people said to me things like, I've realised I never want to travel anywhere. 
I'm not one of those. I think, gosh, I've realised more than ever how much I love to travel uh, places. But, you know, people will have a different shopping list. However, I'm thinking I never want to go to another party again. Whereas I have friends who go, I'm desperate to go to parties. So it, it just helps you to realise the things that are very important to you. So I've realised that, as I say, I don't want to go to parties. I want to spend a lot less time going into an office. I'm very, very happy working remotely. I can get my work done remotely. And even when this coronavirus disappears, I'm going to be a bit more difficult when people say, do you want to come to a studio to record a lovely podcast? I might say to you, you know what, I'll do it from home. And you might say that's not possible. And I'll say, well, I really, really want to. So, you know, it's about sticking up for the things that that, that matter. And for me, they are uh, about travelling for pleasure. Yes, but a lot of work travel doesn't enable me to do my best work. And so, you know, so so it's 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 recalibrating. As for families, I mean, my own family, I've got two sons. They've had real difficulty with school. I mean, they've worked very hard, but they found it really tough. They'd love to go back to school. They'd love to see their friends. I understand that. So for them, it's perhaps tougher than uh, for us adults. They they really don't like virtual school. So that's that. I feel very sorry for them for that. It's It's been quite a big chunk of their lives, really, in a way and no immediate sign of ending either. So that's that's a true worry. It is. Well, it has been a real joy chatting to you, Alain. Thank you so much. I absolutely love what you're doing with The School of Life. I think that the books that you're producing hit the nail on the head and help so many people. You also do classes, don't you? You've got School of Life all over the world now, is that right? We do, although since the coronavirus, everything's online. So you can join us in a in a virtual class. And again, that's great fun. Meet people from all over the world on, on your Zoom lens and so yep everything's online we offer psychotherapy online a whole a whole school is now completely online which has has been a great development fantastic and the newest book out is happy healthy minds i've been reading it to my children and actually this morning i said right you're not going to watch tv in the morning we're going to read this together and we've been reading it earlier on in the (laughs) week and they were so happy genuinely (laughs) my son sort of skipped in yes mummy and actually you know it, it, it's the book, obviously, but I think, it, as you were saying, it's that attention. It's the fact that we were doing something together and I wasn't doing something of mine on my computer while they were watching Cartoon Network or whatever they were watching. Yeah. So a really lovely thing to do, I think, as a family. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Anna. Thank you all for downloading this episode of The Parenthood. You can subscribe, rate and review us wherever you've heard this podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram. I'm at marina.fogel. But in the meantime, from Anna and me, thank you for listening. Goodbye.